and welcome to the American Male Spouse. I'm your host, Elizabeth Smith. I had a really great time talking to Danielle this week. She is active duty military herself, as is her husband. And we had a great conversation about what it was like to, first of all, join ROTC as a master's degree student, which is extremely unheard of and learning about the decision-making that went into that, the quick decision-making that went into that and how she and her husband have navigated a marriage where they have yet to live in the same place was extremely interesting. She also studied public affairs and has an interest in public policy. And if you listen to my episode a few weeks back with Sarah, you'll know is something that I geek out over. So I will warn you that I do a little bit of that again, but it was also so interesting to hear about that as it applies to the military. And I joked with her that I was going to say that she's the person who decides where everybody moves, which is not the case, but she does work with all of that data. And she does talk to us about the process that goes into deciding where people go and how decisions are made and how slots open and a little bit of the science behind that, which is very interesting. So I had a ton of fun talking to Danielle. I know you'll enjoy her episode. So let's get started. Hi, my name is Danielle and I am a 25 year old active duty military officer currently in San Antonio, Texas, while my husband is in Phoenix, Arizona. So dual mill life. <laughs> yeah. And what does he do? He is an F-16 pilot. So he okay. actually just finished the last piece of training and he is headed to Shaw Air Force Base, where I actually get to join him later this year, which is nice. So they're oh, finally really? going to close the gap and get us in the same spot. <laughs> That's awesome. And what do you do? So my job is not nearly as, you know, catchphrase sexy as right. I'm a fighter pilot uh, because I'm not. <laughs> My right. job's a bit more complicated. The actual classification is a force support officer, which really just means that there's a bunch of different jobs that support the operational side of the Air Force. That you think more about personnel, services, the manpower data house that actually puts people in the seats they're supposed to be in, all of that can be a part of my job. So I am likely to never hold the same job twice in my military career. So right now, I'm actually a data analyst for the Manpower Analysis Association or okay. agency, I guess. So when you say, <laughs> you know, manpower and putting people in seats, is that when I hear that, what I picture is like the VML, you get a VML and it has, here's the slots, here's what's available, here's what's needed. Is it that sort of a thing? Is yeah. that kind of what you do? So when the VML is published and you're like, oh my gosh, okay, these people are actually vulnerable to move. I, or at least manpower is everything that comes before that. They have said, here's the, the jobs that are no kidding. We need people in those spots because their mission is essential. Here are all of the hierarchy things we've gone through. Okay, needs of the Air Force, then the mission, then people with the most experience, joint spouse, et cetera. It goes all the way down. And that still is very much a personnel thing, but the number of seats available and the way that they're funded is all manpower. So they have to work together. And that's why mm -hmm. this umbrella is so big. Okay. Because that is so interesting to me that that's what you do, because I feel like for us, that's 
like a magic eight ball or something. It just feels like it's some sort of witchcraft (laughs) magic. And it just like (laughs) suddenly like a number appears and then sometimes random extra things pop up, you know, and it's just like, it's fascinating to me. And I think it's cool that you have a hand in all of that. And so does that also include, again, this is sort of, I guess, I guess pertaining to what I know, but UPT and that kind of stuff, all the numbers for planes and everything? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So there is this huge process that is a, like basically how the sausage is made in the (laughs) Air Force. It's called the POM process. And it doesn't really matter what that stands for, but all you need to know about that POM process is that every major command in the Air Force, so combat command, material command, education and training command, all of them submit their best and most pressing needs. And then headquarters Air Force puts them all in this big old list. And they say, this one's going to get funded and this one's going to get funded. And, you know, maybe we're not going to really fund this one because it's actually not, you know, within the strategic guidance that we're following this year, or it's not what the chief of staff really has at his priorities. So once they're all determined into what's getting funded and funds are distributed, then we count, okay, with this fund, what are we buying in terms of equipment? How many people can we fund with that? Because being a military member is expensive. There's a lot invested in us. And you will, on paper, in numbers, no faces, just true data, the no kidding, here's where the Air Force not only has prioritized its funds and time and resources, but then how that translates on the ground. So once it says we're producing X amount more of whatever to meet our goal, all of a sudden people are like, ooh, New thir- a new F-35 squadron just came online. I wonder where that came from. That was two cycles of a POM. Interesting. Like, okay. Previous. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's very interesting because unfortunately, and we all know this, the Air Force is slow. Change is not quick. No decisions are made quickly. So really when things come online, they've been planned for, funded for, requested years in advance, okay. which is why when people, when something fails, you, the Air Force really has some difficulties adjusting because they're like, wait, we planned for this five years ago. Why didn't it work? Sure. Right. Like we're, we're already building a base for this thing. Yeah. It's, it's intense. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious too, with that, without this is, I mean, we don't have to get into like specific politics, but does that become political too? When you talk about you know, things are potentially funded by the agendas of, you know, these higher ups. So does that play into it as well? Absolutely. So even regardless of political party, Congress at the end of the day could say, no, I don't care how much of a priority it is. We're not shutting down this area or we're not taking this weapon system offline just yet because they have constituents in their represent in their areas that they represent that rely on the base for jobs we you know lots of civilians work on air force bases so mm-hmm. if all of a sudden we took a whole weapon system away bases would be seriously affected in the way that they operate and some might even close. Mm. And that's an extreme example, of course, right. but mm-hmm. Congress protecting their own interests as congressional representatives are probably going to say, Hey, Air Force, pump the brakes. Sure. We're not going to take that offline just yet. Yeah. Um, so it can absolutely become a political game 
because at the end of the day, cash is king, money rules, and and it has to come from somewhere. Right. Uh, so the decision makers for the money, i.e. Congress, have the most power at the end of the day, which is nuts. <laughs> sure. Right. And you figure you look at sort of like a congressional election cycle and then you pair that with the speed at which anything is actually going to be rolled out. And I feel like it's not that hard to keep something going for 10, 15, 20 years by just sort of, you know, kicking the can a little bit. And yeah, there are certainly patterns that could indicate that has happened before. Um, <laughs> it's a very diplomatic way of putting it. I've, I've learned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting to me. How cool. So is there, did you have any, because you mentioned your husband's a pilot. So did you have any awareness of things before he did when it comes to, and for those listening who aren't familiar with that world in the pilot world and, and you can, I, I don't assume with your husband, I don't know if he maybe did like a, a guard situation, but generally speaking, like for mine, you go through your pilot training and at the end you have a drop night and essentially there's a list of, of jets and planes available. Everyone sort of rack and stacks what they want based on what's available. Yep. It's a big mystery. And then there's drop night where you invite a crowd who watches your dreams either be made or crushed. And it's really dramatic and sort of, (laughs) sort of archaic in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're, you're being completely truthful. Sometimes you just don't get what you want because again, the thing that comes first is needs of the air force. Mm -hmm. And then what, what do you even have available? So like for my husband's drop night, even if he had desperately wanted a fifth gen airplane, he wouldn't have gotten it because the Air Force just didn't have one to give mm-hmm. during his drop cycle. Right. So it, was, it wasn't it was going to happen, whether they had one or not, whether he was good enough for one or not. It didn't matter. The Air mm-hmm. Force just didn't have it. Well, you know, either the next cycle or two cycles after him, there were like five or six right. gen airplanes available. And he goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> sure. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, when you are so passionate about something like flying, and you've put in all of that effort, you know, he's, he loves where he ended up. He loves being in the F-16. Mm-hmm. So like you said, you know, sometimes dreams can be crushed, but at the end of the day, you've worked so hard for something, you roll with what you get Absolutely, um, because the Air Force forces you to, you don't really have choice. Yeah. yeah. And I think, <laughs> I mean, fortunately, and, and I'm certainly not like an expert in it, but from what I've seen, people who necess- didn't necessarily get what they were hoping for absolutely made the best of it. And I think it's just, like I said, that moment where they have to stand in front of a crowd and essentially it's like, someone's going to either like shout good news at you or shout bad news at you. And you kind of have to make the same face either way. It's it's right. And so I think for my end, so when he was going through pilot training and up until his drop night, since I commissioned a year after him, I have a year less of active duty time. So he was almost all the way through pilot training by the time I even came on to active duty. Okay. So Knowing what I know now, I think even if I had known that there were going to be no fifth gen available, Mm -hmm. you know, for his drop, it wouldn't, one, it wouldn't have changed his list because at the end of the day, you got to stick to your guns and say, no, I, this is really what I want regardless. Um, But then two, I don't have any control over what his instructors would do. So it would be a weird feeling for me to be like, I know that there's only this coming down the pipeline, should I tell him, should not tell him. 
And sometimes it's fun. He'll say like, Hey, you know, I might, maybe he ends up having a goal that he wants to go to weapons school. Mm -hmm. It's entirely possible for me to pull the data, the manpower, the seats available Mm -hmm. about who goes to, who is currently being selected for Mm -hmm. weapons school, what ranks they are, how many seats available, what planes they fly, so forth, so on. I could pull that. But at the end of the day, it's not going to make or break whether or not he gets in because that work is all on him. So it's kind of nice that, you know, you might get a glimpse. But at the end of the day, knowing that information doesn't necessarily change anything because it's still his career to do. And just like it is on my end, knowing more about the plane isn't is cool and it might help me in certain decisions. But it's not like it has the biggest day to day effect on how I do my job. Sure, sure. That makes sense. That is interesting though. And I just, I think back to that time of uncertainty and waiting for that. And obviously again, you didn't necessarily have it when it applied to your husband specifically, but who had it, I feel like that would have been something else. That would have been, Oh, it would have been so stressful. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's for the best. So, and again, kind of going back to your career, will you tell me about your master's degree and that whole process? Absolutely. I got my, so I got both my bachelor's and my master's from Ohio University in Southeast Ohio, a little town called Athens. But I got my master's in public administration, which is different from public policy, even though policy is just my jam. That is what I live for. Um, But public administration pretty much (laughs) takes policy plus every other factor that you, you really do want in your policy into consideration, organizational leadership and change, uh, public budgeting. And then really what I was able to do in my master's degree was mold it to my interests. So I had one girl in my cohort still getting a master's in public administration, but she was a, a rock star and she pretty much molded it to the drug situation that was happening in Ohio with the opioid epidemic and health advocacy and nonprofit grassroots, everything, which is so different. And I mean, she killed it, but it is so different even to have the same master's degree. Whereas I was focusing on the treatment of military members in and out of the service, the value of where their time goes, the commitments they have to make, and then the policies that affect them during their careers. totally different areas of this life, but still Um, such a fascinating and just disclaimer. And I'm going to try not to totally derail and make this selfish because I actually, (laughs) and it's, it's, it's wild to me because I didn't know your master's before we talked. And I just recently talked to someone who also had a master's, uh, in public hers was in public policy. And I, am super interested in that as well. And so I was nerding out and picking her brain about so much of it. And so I don't want to Please like make- nerd out with me. I, I don't want to make this, this like a public policy podcast all of a sudden, but, um, but to what you're saying, you know, that, because again, like I I'm very interested in this and pursuing a master's in the same thing. And I'm like deep in the process of learning more about it. And what you're saying about the ability to tailor it and focus on these different things. And like the school I'm looking at, it's, it, it, it's a public administration masters with a focus in public policy. So I hear what you're nice. saying. It's like, it's like this, right. They're very, they're very, they can be very linked, but whether you're studying health policy and the opioid epidemic 
or the military community and the decisions they make at the end of the day, like it's, it's, it's a science, like you're sort of taking human nature and trying to turn it into a science, which I think is fascinating. Absolutely. And even though those two topics aren't related uh, on the surface, at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, the VA has to treat veterans who suffer through illnesses or drug addiction, alcohol addiction, PTSD, what have Mm -hmm. you. And there are VA services in Ohio. At the end of the day, her path could absolutely cross with mine. And that's one of the reasons it's such a wonderful degree because everything is connected at the end of the day. You could still be entrenched in one public policy area and overlap with something you never thought of. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's awesome. You get to meet so many people. Right. And I think for me, like I sort of picture public policy as like the like it, it ties like to Freakonomics is sort of how I see it. And in the way that like, if you've read it where policy affects so much, it's such a huge indicator of well-being and quality of life and all the things that obviously I know I'm like preaching to the, to the literal master's degree, (laughs) but I think that that's what fascinates me about it because I think that that's, um, in the, the person that I spoke to about this before, we kind of just talked about how it's those little decisions. It's those small scale things that impact you and that make you change course and make you make different decisions. And so I'm really interested to know what you learned about that from the military community side. Like what did you study and what, what sort of um, kind of general like trends did you find? That's tough. (laughs) Um, because sometimes not all the trends are encouraging. Let me just say that, (laughs) but I think the biggest takeaway in a, in a very broad sense is that policy is not law. Sometimes it is, but not always. So it's not technically illegal to break certain policies. Sometimes it is. So policy being so fragile can get very messy. Okay. And the way that it's interpreted is so key because someone might look at a policy in black and white that says, this document says, I can do X. I cannot do Y. Therefore, I'm going to follow it to a T. Somebody else might look at that same document and say, well, it says I'm allowed to do X and it says I can't do Y, but it never says anything about Z. So Mm. I'm going to take a risk and just see if I can get, you know, get somewhere with it. Okay. And that's why policy, even though it's messy at the end of the day is all about human behavior. It is Mm -hmm. all about how you think somebody is going to act based on what has been written because it can guide, um, more often than not, it's not law all the time. So all you can do is hope it pushes that person in the direction you want them to go. So you have to think about, what what is this person going to take away from me writing this policy who's it going to affect and like like i said again sometimes where are those overlaps that you didn't see coming and then where are those gaps that you didn't find mm-hmm. and at the end of the day in an organization like the military there are things that the military does very well just broad scope air force army marines all of them there are things they do very well 
but often in their policy, it's very reactive, not proactive. Mm. So they'll find, hey, we got this issue. Let's draft a new policy. We're going to solve it. We're going to say that this is now our goal. This is our mission. We're going to solve it based on X, Y, Z. Here's what they can and can't do. But at the end of the day, how long is it going to take for that to be rolled out, standardized, understood? Cultural change is slow. And that's not necessarily unique to the military, but Mm -hmm. the military does definitely struggle with being more reactive than proactive Mm -hmm. in their policy decisions specifically. Obviously, there are other things we do very well. (laughs) I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think that there's also just a a general struggle with tradition in the military, that there's tradition and that sometimes that's what draws people to the military. And so I think that sometimes policies that are then implemented that feel like they might contradict tradition or they might in any way sort of jeopardize whatever that tradition might be, that that sort of thing is, that's hard. That's hard because there's there's pride in tradition and there's emotion tied to that too. And so I think that that's a hard thing that I've seen recently the military grapple with, with implementing new things that people feel are butting up against the way things have always been done and that people came to this career because of how things had been done. And, and not for, not necessarily for the specific reasons that these policies are being implemented, but Sure. Nonetheless, anything that sort of feels like it might shift the environment that people know and are proud of is scary, I think. And unsettling change is so scary. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you know a good change is coming down the pipeline. That that's still scary because you're like, okay, crap. What didn't I expect out of this? And like you said, Mm -hmm. who are who are my oddballs out? Who are my game changers that might make this more difficult than it needs to be. And sure. there's some in every group, you know, it's right. just life. <laughs> yep. That's, that's the truth. And it's hard. Cause like you said, things don't move, especially fast. And there's a lot of hands that are tied by sometimes very valid and necessary protocols and steps that things have to go through. But like you said, that's oh, why, yeah. that's why I think a lot of times things end up being kind of reactionary and and resisted too, unfortunately, I think, but yeah, that can, that absolutely happens. Yeah. (laughs) We saw, we saw people throw tantrums over the fact that women had a hair regulation change. That's a policy. (laughs) You know, when somebody is that upset about something so specific, narrow, and not even remotely mission threatening, you gotta wonder why. Yeah, You know, where is that coming from? And that goes back to human behavior. What did Mm -hmm. they expect out of this? What are they internalizing from this? Do they feel excluded? Do they feel that their team is going to be compromised in a certain way? Even Mm -hmm. though to me, I'm like, how, you know, but I didn't one, I didn't write the policy. Um, But two, I would hope that even something as surface level as allowing women to put their hair into braids of a certain length, somebody did say, okay, how is this going to affect the mission? Because at the end of the day, the Air Force is all about its mission. Every military service is. Mm -hmm. Um, And gratefully, 
no mission is jeopardized by me having my hair in a braid. It's awesome, right? right? So right. No, so flying colors. But if that didn't happen in the discussion at a higher level, it can't trickle down to say, hey guys, we've thought about this and we've talked about it and here's why it mm-hmm. won't jeopardize X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And so, but if you don't address that, people are left to their own devices to come up with whatever they want to think. And that's why policy is so messy because it's all up to interpretation. And see, I can nerd out with you. Right. I know. Here we go. <laughs> you get me going. <laughs> but I am curious, if you don't mind with that specific example, was the resistance that you, as far as you know, was that active duty? Was that like fellow active duty females, males, retired males, retired females? Like where, where did that resistance come from? I'm curious for something like that. That's in my mind. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, the resistance to this particular policy came from all of the places that you just listed. Hmm. But I think it depended on the way that one, I received news of the policy and two, the community forums that I'm a part of, not only on social media, but at my specific installation. Okay. So I'm really lucky that in San Antonio, um, things are really great here in terms of being celebrated. And mm-hmm. I'm at a pretty big installation. So there, you saw the change immediately because there's a ton of women who immediately threw their hair up in braids as soon as it was allowed. Mm-hmm. And on social media, I was able to see the stories of people who at other installations ran into resistance from their active duty counterparts, be it male or female, um, because sometimes girls can be bullies too. And, and but then on the forums where it was official guidance posted, oftentimes you'll have veterans, civilians who either have a very strong connection to the service from being in or family that would say, or that would respond uh, very strongly one way or another. And I think it just depends on which avenues you actively engage in. And and that's where you're going to see the resistance because at the end of the day, it kind of came from everywhere, but Mm -hmm. I saw it most in those three platforms, the like the female centric support forums for women officers, general social media, and then just on my installation. And Mm -hmm. I know that my husband probably saw a completely different thing because he's got way less women in his squadron but he still has access to the same Facebook groups I do. Sure. So it's interesting. There's going to be overlap, but he definitely saw a different side of the situation than I did. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, it does. And that's interesting to me. And that's, again, you're, that makes total sense because I agree when you, when, when a new mandate comes out, even, even just, if I read it on my local newspaper, their article versus seeing it in the, in the, squadron group or whatever, you can get a very different take on, on the policy. Oh, or, absolutely. So, and I think that that's so important to keep in mind in general, not to get on a whole other soapbox about the world, <laughs> <laughs> but really that, like know where you're reading stuff, keep in mind where you're reading it, keep in mind this audience. And, and like you alluded to before, like what's important to them? What did they care about within this? And like you said, you know, for instance, like the veteran community, like what's important to them is what they experienced and sort of sustaining that experience and that, Oh yeah. uh, That view of the military, that memory, that, that life of the military, because knock on one, hopefully it was a, a happy memory and something that they want to continue as they know it. And so sometimes, like you said, like something 
as little as silly as braids is going to be like, hang on, that's not how it was before. Don't, don't mess with, with what I know and what I love and care about. So, okay. I want to hear, I'm very interested and intrigued by your experience because you you mentioned that you did ROTC while you were getting your master's. Is that, is that common? (laughs) Yeah. No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It was. What were you thinking? I guess not. (laughs) Okay. So here's what I was thinking. A little bit of a story time. Um, So my husband and I met in conflict management class, right? And that's a really great wasn't place in, to meet a spouse. I think to know that he at least I, has every time we field. tell people <laughs> they just die laughing yeah. because if you, if you know my husband, his, his way of managing conflict is sometimes very similar to mine. And then sometimes the exact opposite, <laughs> but I digress. We met, became friends and I hadn't joined ROTC yet. And, and then I joined my master's and he still had, or, and I started my master's and he had one more, one more year left of undergrad. He had a five-year program because he was in the engineering college. And he was like, you know what? I just think you'd be a really good officer. And I was like, I mean, yeah. Okay. And I was like, but that's, it's too late for me now. You know, I had looked into it previously more with the Coast Guard than the Air Force. And he was like, well, I mean, just swing by, you know, the detachment and see what you think about it. See what can be done. You know, no harm in asking. Okay. Second week of my master's program, I eat 48 hours after I asked, what can I do to join? I was signing my life away. So here we (laughs) called my mom, like, Hey mom, I did this surprise. (laughs) It was the most out of the blue decision. What did she say? Danielle, what? (laughs) And then she goes, your dad's not going to believe that. And I was like, yeah, that's my bad. (laughs) Was that on your radar before that? I mean, I guess you said you looked into it a little bit with the Coast Guard. So did a little bit. Yeah. But at the end of the day, my dream at the time was very much, you know, how do I, how do I get to the state department, which is lofty, right? Every college aged individual when they're like, where do I want to be in 20 years? Such a tough question. And I was like, you know what? I want to be at the state department. And at the end of the day, for you to get seen at at a federal level, you have to have your foot in the door in some way. And I knew that connections in the political realm, family-wise and money and an Ivy league education were out for me. Those three are big factors. So like, (laughs) what's the next one? Military service. And it had just appealed to me in general. And so it kind of fit. And I was like, you know what? Okay, I can do this. What's the worst that can happen? Well, here I am married to my husband, an Air Force officer living this life. Um, But it is absolutely not normal to do it with a master's because not only do you have to take four years of what you learn in ROTC, a standard four-year curriculum, squeeze it into two, but you're also doing your master's, which involves research projects, a portfolio, a thesis. It's a mess. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) But... I did it. Uh, My commander thankfully took a chance on me and it paid off. Sometimes when you take a chance on a two-year cadet, they don't pay off. We had a couple of those in our detachment. None of them were master's students, but yeah, I haven't met anyone else yet that has done ROTC while in graduate school. It's kind of unheard of because it's a big risk and it's a lot of commitment. Sure. And so the, the others that you're talking about with those, then they were just people who started it like their junior year of undergrad, as far as like a two year. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Gotcha. Yeah. Just wonky time frame 
mm-hmm. or extenuating circumstances of having to take a break at college, uh-huh. et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And so were you dating your husband at the time when you decided that, or you were still just friends at that point? No, we were still just friends. And okay. then I got through a year of ROTC and he about to commission and we ended up dating. And that's how it goes. <laughs> and then, like, this is only getting more and more impractical. So let's go ahead and yeah, wait. I, for, for real, absolutely <laughs> chaos. And <laughs> and then we end up engaged the day I commissioned. So oh, just chaotic. <laughs> that's cute though. That's very cute. cute. But you can imagine the the whirlwind that that also causes into non-military families. I was Yeah. And so how did your families, like how have they dealt with that? Just both of you not being from that background. I give my parents in particular so much grace considering one, it, it was sprung on them 100% by surprise. Um, Brian has always known his entire life that he wants to be a fighter pilot. And so it was kind of a no brainer that he was going to figure out a way to fly one of those really cool jets. And, Mm -hmm. and that's something they always knew about him. It's his passion and God love him. He's great at it. Mm -hmm. But for me, I'm obviously really passionate about policy, but that can take you anywhere. So for my parents, they've, I give them so much grace because they have been very understanding about things that are not typical, right? Even buying a house. I had to do everything long distance. Brian's right. in Arizona and I'm in Texas and we're buying a house in South Carolina. Right. Um, I'm sure there's other military wives listening right now that are dying with laughter because that's just how it goes. Sure. Whereas my parents, they were like, well, why can't you just go see the house in person? Take time off. <laughs> I was like, oh, see, that's funny. Right. <laughs> you think I have leave. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's, so they just really, they ask a lot of questions and it's up to them to retain the information that they feel is most important. They're mm-hmm. never going to know the ins and outs of all the acronyms, but at the end of the day, if they can at least understand why we're doing this, why we took such a risk on each other and this lifestyle, that's enough for me. I don't mind repeating myself again and again for the same question, just because they forgot what a TDY is. Sure. Um, if it makes them feel better that they know that TDY is necessary, important, and how to support me during it, whether I'm leaving or that Brian's the one going off, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, that at the end of the day was is so much better to have um, mm-hmm. than them just being knowledgeable. <laughs> sure. Knowledge only gets you so Yeah, far. exactly. You're right, because you don't have to know everything to just know that they're gonna that they're there to support you. And that they're, mm-hmm. they're ready to roll with whatever, whatever you yeah. call them with and tell them where you're going and what's happening and all that craziness. Yeah. And I know you said that you guys are going to f- get the chance soon enough to be in the same place together. Have you been able to live you, by that? I mean, you and your husband, not your parents, but are yeah. you, <laughs> have you been able to live in the same place yet as a married couple? No. Wow. Nope. <laughs> yep. and, it's, so, and how long have you been married so we've been married since september of 2019 okay. we started dating in january of 2018 okay and we've been apart for that entire time because he commissioned and like pulled out mm-hmm. you know and then i was still finishing up graduate school so that was long distance and then 
I had to move to Texas. So that was long distance. And then he had to go to Arizona and that's long distance. And so we'll both link up at South Carolina. It's fine. (laughs) Catch up, see how the last couple of years have been. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. Wow. And really, yeah, because those weren't, I mean, not just long distance, but long distance in programs that don't allow for a lot of flexibility either with getting your master's and UPT and B course and all that kind of stuff. So that's a lot. How have you guys made it work? Um, wow. How have we done it? I think we laugh every time we think about that because it feels like just when we have the one face figured out, they move us. And right. I think it's intentional. I just think they can hear us. You know, it, it just manifests <laughs> that way. <laughs> right. But it's very much about me telling him. This is no kidding the expectations they have of me. So this is kind of where I need us to be. And he did the exact same thing in UPT. He was like, this is what they expect of me. Here's where I need you during this program. Mm -hmm. And I think knowing when, knowing there was an end date to each of those programs helps a little bit. But even in this normal general active duty life or day-to-day struggle. It's very much about expectation management. I mean, we're dealing with different time zones, different property locations, trying to manage joint finances. At the, if I it was not in contact with him about at least regular routine decisions that you might come home and you're like, honey, I'm thinking about doing this over dinner. It's something that I, even if I know I'm not talking to him directly at a time, at that time, I'm going to type it out in a text message and send it to him. And whenever he responds, I'm like, okay, I see where you're at. We'll talk about it at X conversation before Mm -hmm. bed, you know, after work. And then finding the no kidding, maybe two things a day, because any more than that and your routine is going to sink that ship, but one or two things a day that will always happen. So those no kidding things for Brian are, he will let me know when he's on the ground after a flight. If I if he's flying that day, I better know when he is on the ground. Otherwise, I'm gonna be like, listen, you, you your your takeoffs must equal your landings, okay, babe? <laughs> That's just how it goes. Um, and he also always calls me on his way into work, not always after, but always as he goes into work. Mm-hmm. And then mine for him kind of mimic that at lunchtime. If I can, I usually give him a recap of what's about to come, especially if I have a late day or what's happening. So Mm -hmm. we have like the no kidding bare minimum. And then after that, it's just, what can I expect from you? What can you give me? Here's what I got for you today. And yeah, make, you make it work. You know, there's not much more you can do because yeah, we chose this life, but we didn't choose it like this. This sucks. But (laughs) Sure. Well, you know, and I think like, I hate the whole, you know, chose this life because really what you did is you chose each other and then you're making the life work. And I think that that's, yeah. And I like the way that you do that though. I think that having sort of a couple constants is really smart and a really good way to go about that. Cause even my husband's TDY right now, and I've, we've been crazy lucky with how long it's been since last TDY, like to the point that I'm like, when's garbage day, you know, it's, it's been a long time. And, but also like, I was joking with him last night because it was like, I had sent him and it was over the course in my defense of like 
10, 12 hours, like random things where I'm like, he, he texts me something and I'm like, yeah, they, they mailed this. And then, Hey, here's the update on this thing. Yes. Before da da da, And I'm just like sending him all these different things every couple hours. And by the end of it, I'm like, Oh, this is kind of fun. It's like having a diary. Like nobody ever answers me. I'm just putting it out. <laughs> in the <view> of it. <laughs> That's but, amazing. <laughs> and it's, it's like, okay, he's gone for two weeks. Like, it's fine. We're just going to basically catch up in two weeks. But obviously when you're doing this for years at a time, you have to figure out what works. And like you said, yeah, it can't be too much because once it's too much, it's then it's disappointment and frustration and all that kind of stuff. But you have to have something that you can count on and make sure that you're still a part of each other's life. And having fortunately never done that kind of long distance for nearly that long, but even just when I think back to like deployments, same thing where it's like, well, I can't sit around all day hoping to hear from you. Right. And, and, lose and we'll, my mind and we'll have it. to go back through expectation management at yep. that too. Mm-hmm. Like here, here is no kidding what my schedule is going to look like, Danielle. So right. based on what I know, here's my one constant I'm going right. to give you, you know, right. and if I can anchor to that, I can roll with pretty much yeah. anything else, but I'm the type of person where you, you just need to be straightforward with me. I don't do fluff. I'm really bad at it. Right. <laughs> like I'm, kind of a problem, but, but it's just, I I'm realistic. I would love to always be optimistic. And sometimes that's true, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, being realistic means sometimes you're not, sure. um, and that's just reality. So, you know, as long as I, if, as long as I know what's happening to a certain degree, and I know that at least whatever's being passed my way is as much truth as he has accessible to him at that time. Cause that's how you got to phrase it. It's how much he has accessible to him at that time. And same on my end. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying my CEO has it all together all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's all you can do. That's all you can ask for. Yeah. I feel like you probably did pretty well in your conflict management class. Ah! <laughs> oh, I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking back on it right now. And I'm pretty sure we both got good grades. <laughs> I mean, you got a spouse out of it. So I feel like (laughs) even if you, even if you got like a C minus, you, you know, you still won. But I got Brian, right? What is that? A C versus a husband. Yeah, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Okay. I'm going to jump over to our rapid fire because I want to make sure that we have time for it. Go for it. So first one, who is your favorite musician? My favorite musician? Oh, that is so difficult. <laughs> these this are is why it's ones. rapid fire, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, these are it's a new rapid fire. They have I've oh. I've asked I think one other person, but it hasn't aired yet. So yes, you were, and you can blame you can mm. blame the listeners because these are listener submitted, so you can't be mad at me for them. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, so the people who know me are not going to be surprised by this, but even though I have some, some favorite genres, the majority of my favorite artists are actually Latin artists. So we got like Jay Balvin and Ricky Iglesias, Daddy Yankee. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're in that realm. Oh, um, Maluma. Oh, that man sings to my soul. Um, because of the, Brian, Brian always tells me, he's like, Danielle, you are a very fiery Italian woman, but at the end of the day, I think there's a Latina inside of you. He's like, cause <laughs> That's awesome. I'm just so drawn to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd have to say any of those Latin, Latin musicians, That's I'm, cool. I'm on board. Do you have any, was there any sort of connection to that or just, just straight up? Like, I just like how that music sounds. 
So I actually was a part of a program in college during undergrad. And I had the opportunity to travel around Peru and Ecuador. And my Spanish was really good at that time. Unfortunately, I've lost a little bit of it since, you know, you just don't use it on a daily basis. But I fell in love with everything about that culture. And the beauty of that part of the program was that you actually got to work on a no kidding business venture with either a nonprofit, a client, some type of organization in that country. So um, you made connections too. You weren't just a wandering soul, which sometimes I can be, but <laughs> yeah. that's really cool. That's neat. That's really neat connection too. I love it. If you could change one thing about military spouse life, what would it be? Oh Lord. Finance. <laughs> <laughs> the finance office. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I mean, only a little. Um, yeah, if I could change one thing about military spouse life is that you could you could choose at least three things that you knew you would have control over. At the end of the day, we don't have control over much. And sometimes it can feel like we definitely float as the military ship drags us along. And I know that there are more people than just me that crave that autonomy um, because we're, we're human beings too. We have our own interests. We have our own jobs, our careers, our thoughts, our dreams, et cetera. Um, I know, I know there are more people who are just kind of biding their time until they can do more on that. Um, and it's a balance, but yeah, if I, if I could give military spouses the ability to just control one more aspect of their life, I would. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you, sorry, this is not rapid fire, but that just piqued a question for me. <laughs> Do you feel like you are at this point still able to freely pursue your career as you hoped you would? I think so. I really do because my my requirement for active duty service is not nearly the year commitment that Brian has. His mm -hmm. is much longer. Granted, you know, there are ways to circumvent and adapt and maybe mm -hmm. change that depending on circumstances, but if pretty much if I'm not happy what I'm doing and I'm lucky to have the full support of my family, my spouse, everyone around me, that it's like, if you just don't feel valued, if you don't feel fulfilled, go somewhere else. And mm. then, like I said, kind of the, the beauty of the career field that I'm in is that I know I'm never going to have the same job twice. And you can kind of do anything for about two years. I don't have to pick my career right now. So right now I kind of feel like I'm in like skill gathering mode. Right. I got my education. I got some real world experience under my belt. I'm going to let the Air Force develop me in ways they see fit for a little bit. And then mm -hmm. when I think I'm done, I'll, I'll be done. You know, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't feel pulled one way or another right now, which is really, really. <laughs> I know it is a, such a privilege to feel like that, because trust me, I didn't start out that way. I. <laughs> yeah, it's it's 100 percent the acceptance of my situation where I'm at and also supporting Brian, you know, knowing that this is not a bad place to be mm -hmm. if I want to be with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, even with, with your field of study, how, how diverse it is and the fact that, you know, as right. your job is changing every time, hopefully that gives you some more of an idea, kind of like how we look at houses that by the time we're done moving, we're going to know exactly what house we want because we're going to have lived in, <laughs> yeah. in every single one and you're going to know <laughs> You're gonna know exactly. I don't what want any shiplap, babe. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> All right. Well, sorry. I know that I jumped off course there, but when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I wanted to be an author a hundred percent. I thought I could be the next big thing. Like as a child, my diaries were ridiculous. They were nonsense. They were not substantive, but I wrote like a crazy person. I thought it was something you had to like really work hard at and do all the time. And I wanted to look like the librarian and the authors that I admired. Mm. Oh yeah. I was crazy. (laughs) I don't think that's crazy. I think that's ambitious. I think that's great. And I do think that that's a part of it. Having done that is, you know, a lot of people do. Did you, would you still want to write? I think so. I think so. Um, it depends on what, and it depends on the timing, but Mm -hmm. I also think, so that was my like, no kidding. This is what I'm going to do. But I think even childhood me really wanted to be a ballerina. I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) That's great too. Also ambitious. Also super ambitious. Never went anywhere with it, but (laughs) I can pick writing back up. I can't do the splits anymore. Right. I feel you there. Oh, that's so sad. I think back. I I was a gymnast for a short time, and well, I guess I shouldn't yeah. say a short time. But not a short time, just a long while ago. But I still, <laughs> it's still kind of sad. Oh, it's yeah. been what you know, fifteen years since I last did the splits, probably. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh. it's been a minute. <laughs> mm-hmm. What is your dream duty station? Oh, my dream duty station. Hmm. Okay. I have loved San Antonio. I just wish Brian was here with me. Um, But I have always, I have always been on board with the idea of, I mean, there's the standard like, Ooh, like Italy would be amazing or whatever, but I am so drawn to the idea of just living in Alaska for a hot minute. I really am that wilderness, that seclusion, that different way of life, that mm-hmm. completely different sense of operating. You're not going to get that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And how cool would that be to go there because the Air Force just wants you to for a, yeah. for just a little bit, right? You don't have to settle there long term. Uh-huh. That's kind of nice. Yeah. I think I would enjoy being in Alaska for a little bit. Yeah. I could do Anchorage. I could do Anchorage. I couldn't do uh, much more rural than that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's starts fair. To, but it, but it, I always I always use the disclaimer, which is totally a crutch and not true, and largely just because I'm too high maintenance for it. That we do have two small kids, so that starts to feel harder when it comes to like the more <laughs> like, desolate you get. But at the same time, without two small kids, like I wouldn't do. And well see, I feel like I, I feel just like Brian <laughs> just got the short end of the rope with me because I am the the soul that I am. I'm the type of person who like always has a bag ready. And yeah. I can throw my dog in the truck and, and just, I'm off the grid. Yeah. And he sometimes will just be like, where are you going now? Now, <laughs> what are you doing? So I'm a little bit of the opposite. I, <laughs> I wouldn't mind disappearing. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's awesome. That's great. And I just read, have you read the great alone by Kristen Hanna? Yes. What a wonderful book. Yeah. It's a good tough, one. but it's, yeah. but it is, it, it forces you to use your imagination. So listeners, it is a good book, but mm-hmm. be warned. Tough subject matter for some things. For sure. But yeah. it is engaging. Yeah, I was gonna say it's a page turner. It's the I think it's the last oh, book I read that yeah. really like I kept me up till way too late having to finish it. But mm-hmm. yeah, not super light, but about Alaska. 
So (laughs) (laughs) it's got Alaska in it, folks. (laughs) (laughs) And quite frankly, if someone reads it, it is also a decent argument for my case as to why I don't especially want to go to the rural parts of Alaska. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah. But I hope you have fun. I hope you do get your dream. Okay. Last one is what is your favorite way to relieve stress? My favorite way to relieve stress is probably going for a hike anywhere. So like I just said, I love to get off the grid. Mm -hmm. I love the solitude of just being, I mean, I, yeah, I love the solitude of being on a trail, but I also just like seeing new things. I like being outdoors. If that is not an option for whatever reason, um, weather, what have you, my, my favorite thing to do is probably, wow, to relax. I don't know if I relax. <laughs> right. I'm trying to think. It's I think a I like critical to question because I feel the same. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm pretty sure I make the dirtiest kitchen ever. I okay. cook my heart out. Yeah, right. I really do. It, it, it is relaxing to me. And, mm-hmm. and like I alluded to earlier, being, being Italian, but also having such a strong draw to other cultures that I've been able to experience food is love. And mm-hmm. if I'm trying to relax, I, I, I want some food and yeah. it better be good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, the kitchen is my happy place. So that's probably where I would go if I couldn't go outside. Yes. I think that's a, I think that's a great option. And I agree. I think that I, especially for me again, with the kiddos, it usually means that my husband knows, okay, something good is happening there. So I'm going to keep the children over here so that can keep happening. So it's a good way to kind of carve out my own space, carve out my own. Yeah. Right. Food is love. He yes. knows if that food's good, that there was love in it, right. but if that food's not good, I'm kind of meant she was, she got distracted. Right. <laughs> right. I always tease him. There's a line in, um, how I met your mother when, uh, two of them in a fight and he's talking about how mad she was. And he's like, she made a pancake and bacon strip, which is <laughs> always like <laughs> my favorite <laughs> because that's where like, Sometimes I knew all the Brian, Yeah. Brian has sent me the meme before of like, when you know that you're not done arguing with your wife and it's the wife that packed him his lunch, but they left the cellophane wrapper on the American cheese in the sandwich. <laughs> I'm like, like, see, it's a thing. Mm -hmm. I haven't done it yet because I don't live with him, but (laughs) (laughs) just things you'll tuck away. There'll, there'll be an opportunity soon. Yeah. (laughs) New ways for you two to communicate that you have to look forward to. Hilarious. (laughs) Okay. Can you leave us with your favorite quote? Yes. Um, and it's going to be very applicable to the research brain that I have. It is, you cannot study the darkness by flooding it with light. And what I, it's by Edward Abbey. And what I take away from that is you can't put your own experience on someone else. And the best way to understand something is by having empathy. You can't, even if you are being, if even if you are bearing witness to such darkness, and you feel like you have something that could lighten it and, and help and things like that, it's not always your place. And you're not really going to understand it if that's the position you're always going to come from is to fix something. It's not fair to anybody else for you to put yourself on them unsolicited. 
And at the end of the day, greater understanding comes when those two areas, darkness and light, just merge naturally. You know, you think about a horizon with a sunset or sunrise, that's where the beauty is. Just let it happen. And I'm a really big believer in that. I love ending these episodes by having our guests share their favorite quote because sometimes there's just certain words that are exactly what someone needs to hear at that moment. And truly, Danielle's quote is exactly what I needed to hear at that moment. So I thank her for sharing that with me. It just resonated with me so deeply and I hope it did with you as well. Make sure that you're keeping up with us on social media at The American Mill Spouse, where you'll get more information about new episodes, cool and exciting things that are going on within The American Mill Spouse. And you can also check out our full library of past episodes on our website at www.theamericanmillspouse.com. And we'll talk to you next week.